0: Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go, with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to The Final Curtain. Ordinary New Zealanders telling their stories about death. I'm Shirley Welsh host of Death Cafe Dunedin where people meet in all sorts of places to drink tea eat cake and discuss death. In this program we break the taboo around talking about death and hear firsthand from New Zealanders about their experiences and their perspectives. Today I'm interviewing Kate. Kate's mum was 53 when she was diagnosed with leukaemia and given a year to live. Kate, did your mum do anything that brought home to you the reality of the fact that she was dying?
1: Yes, she did. We we openly talked about it, but I remember one day uh, I was sitting in the lounge and Mum had popped out to do a bit of shopping, and she came up the stairs with a big paper bag in her hand, and I said, oh, what did you buy? And she said, oh, I bought my urn. And she pulled out this lovely little wooden box out of the bag, and um, that just really, really um, spoke to me kind of what was going on, you know, thinking that she was going to be in there eventually. Um, And it was really very confronting.
0: I'm sure Um, it would have been. So tell us a bit about your mum's um, cancer journey.
1: Okay, um, yep, she was diagnosed when she was 53. Um, I was only 22 at the time. Um, And she was brought down to... Uh, She lived in Nelson at the time and was brought down to Christchurch in an air ambulance um, and put straight into isolation. Uh, So that was first initially a big shock. Um, And she spent a year in Christchurch receiving treatment, including a bone marrow transplant from her own bone marrow. Um, And she had radiation, chemotherapy, uh, was in and out of isolation, Um, and then finally went into remission around a a year later. Um, She was on a drug trial for a different kind of leukaemia, which um, they thought they would put her on to help prolong her life, and it did. They gave her a relatively small percentage chance of surviving after a year, and she lived for um, another six years. So um, after a good few years in remission, she had some more blood tests and discovered that she had come out of permission and um, they had given her about 12 weeks to live um, from that point in which she had received blood transfusions and, and helped to you know, keep her quality of life as much as possible um, and she actually lived for another six months uh, so she did pretty well considering the odds that she was given
0: So given the extra time she received did she make changes to her life? Um,
1: yeah, she did. She was she was working quite a stressful job at at the time that she was first diagnosed, um and she had a lot of stress, a lot of um there was a lot of relationship difficulties in her workplace. and um, so after she was diagnosed, she had attributed a lot of that stress to to what had happened and her illness, um and then she ended up slowly slowly decreasing her work until she wasn't working at all. um she did a, a wee bit of marking for example from home as she was teaching at the time um, and then she put all her efforts into her her passions and her love of crafts and painting and singing and um, just all sorts quilting um, and spending time with friends and family um, travelling up to see her mother who lived in Wellington at the time Yeah, so she made a lot of changes and she was much more relaxed and, and happy and just let her let her interest and passion flow free, I believe. Yes. Yeah.
0: So, when you heard that her cancer had returned, what did you do?
1: Um, I was uh, I was in Christchurch at the time, so she came down from came down to Christchurch um, to have a checkup when she found out. Um, so when it had returned, we went back up uh, to Nelson and. Um, my partner at the time we had a two and a half year old daughter and we decided we'd get married so mum was able to be there so mum was very very happy about this and she we planned and planned our wedding and held it about two and a half weeks after we decided so about probably about three or four weeks into her coming out of remission. We wanted to do it as soon as possible so she was able to be there um, and we didn't know, you know how her health would be if we left her any longer. So, But it was a great day and she was there and she was fine and she did a
0: reading and for us and yeah, it was lovely. So on reflection, did you think preparing for a wedding at the same time as she was dying was a good thing?
1: Yes, it was. It gave us a lot of um, a different kind of focus um, my mum's always been a pretty positive person, um, but I think it, just, it really... She she wouldn't have... Um, if it hadn't been for that, she wouldn't have seen either me or my brother have, get married or any more grandchildren. So it was important to me and to Hugh that she was able to be there for that kind of part of our lives. Um, and mum was really involved in planning it, uh, was at their house... Um, and yeah actually it was um, it was a very positive experience we, it was a very family affair it was a small wedding um, but yes it was a, a family affair and we had the ceremony on the courtyard um, downstairs in the same area that we later on had mum's um, celebration with her life so that was nice and we had a a big full-size wine barrel in the corner which um was kind of a bit of a podium, I suppose, for us and a wedding, but also held Mum's ashes, um, though several months later.
0: Hmm. So, given that your mum wasn't going to watch her grandchildren grow up, did you do anything or she do anything to preserve memories of her for them? Uh, yes, she did. She,
1: um, the hospice that we worked she was being cared for at home, um, had a service to write biographies for people. and um, So she would come, the lady would come along, come around with a little tape recorder and mum would speak into it and then she would take it away and type it up. Um, so we've got that. It's a very, very large book indeed uh, but it's really great to have that record and I will, when the time comes, you know, I'll play it for my grandchildren, they can read it. Um, I mean, for her grandchildren, my children. Um, they can read it, and we we do share a lot of stories about Granny Fran, um, that's what she liked to be called. And we um, I have pictures um, in my room, and the, all my children know who she is, and co- yeah, call her Granny Fran. And I wish I could see her. So I feel like we're really keeping, you know, her memory alive for them. Um, yeah, and she also left certain things for my daughter at the time. Um and my youngest daughter who's only eight now, um, really is, you know, when I grow up am I gonna get something of Granny Friends. So she they know all about her.
0: Did she express any regrets as she was dying about her life? Um she did a bit. She she talked a lot about
1: how the the stress of her job um impacted on her well being and her you know, the her diagnosis she received. Um, she had a lot of conflict with a, a male colleague that she was working with at the time and she was a bit she was you know, she was fairly feminist in her views and opinions, so just didn't really sit well with her and it actually took her a long time to kind of deal with um those problems that arose. Um, yeah, and she just she just she wished she had not let herself get stressed.
0: Yeah. Did your mum continue with treatment right till the end? Um, she nearly did. She
1: um, she had to have blood transfusions to keep up her uh, platelet count and, and all those blood terminologies. Um, and at the beginning, when she first came out of remission, they happened maybe every three to four weeks uh, and didn't take too long and then as the further we went on they became closer and closer together until mum just didn't have much of a quality of life really and uh, she was really sore and really unwell and she had to have them every couple of days really and it just wasn't very nice to her so that's when she made the decision to um, stop treatment because the the quantity of life um it was not equal to the quality of life, I suppose you put it.
0: <laughs> yeah. And were you on board with her decision to stop that treatment? Um, yes, I was, because I could see
1: how how uncomfortable she was. Um, it's not a nice situation to be in, or for her any of her family to see as well. She couldn't really eat very well because she had a quite a large, um, more blood blood kind of um, you know wound type thing on her tongue. Um, and that made it just very hard for her to eat and enjoy, enjoy any food, uh, which I know she found really hard. My brother, um, who was living at home at the time with his partner, was a chef, so he would always cook these wonderful meals that mum just found really difficult to eat. So she didn't enjoy that and just just being very uncomfortable. Um, she was, you know, it was likely that she could have a brain bleed aneurysm that kind of thing, because of the condition at the time, um and there was a couple of times where she kind of lost her memory because we are only the getting up in the middle of the night and having to help her go to the toilet, and she was a bit confused about you know where my daughter was and and what was happening um so i was I was fine for her to to make that decision for herself um it's it's you know it's really up to her. It's her body and her life, so I believe people should have um, you know, autonomy to make decisions like that. Um, yes, so I really supported her.
0: When did her condition start to deteriorate markedly?
1: Markedly. Um, it was probably about a week after she stopped having her blood chain sessions, after that decision to stop any more treatment. Um, and that was when the hospice nurse came on board a bit more, um, and she came along and she had a she attached a pump to mum's arm that was, you know, like a a little IV kind of line onto her arm to give her different drugs to make her comfortable and anti-anxiety drugs and things like that. And we had a member who had a locked suitcase of drugs in the wardrobe um, that she could top up things when she came round. Um, she yeah, said that it would. It would, you know, help. But she, and she said we would see a bit of a deterioration quite quickly. Um, and I remember she could still she could still walk around with some support for about maybe one to two days after she had the pump um, put in her arm. Uh, and then I remember we were sitting out on the balcony. Um, my parents live in a they lived in a two-storey house on the hill. Um, overlooking the sea and we remember we were all sitting on the balcony as a family and um, having a, a drink and um, just chatting and looking at the view and I looked around and her head just dropped forward like her chin dropped to her chest and we kind of knew then that maybe something had happened or the drugs had kicked in or something. Like, and we popped her into bed and she was she she. Remained fairly unresponsive from about then on, but more so towards the end of that week, yeah.
0: So what were her last days like?
1: Um, they were, you know, she was in, in her bed all the time, obviously. Um, my brother and I made the decision to sleep on the floor in her room uh, during those, those last few nights. Um, and she had some, you know, some close and special people come to see her, um, and and um, you know to be with her, spend some time with her. She could still, at times, she could still communicate by squeezing our hands or something like that, which kind of showed that she could hear us a bit, but she wasn't able to talk back. Um, I remember she also had a. she had had been writing poetry in a poetry course and they had uh, published a book with some of the work in it from the uh, participants of that course and it had just been published and her tutor who she adored came round in those last few days with the published book and I remember him like holding it above her face so she could see Um, so that was really cool that she actually got to see the book um, that she had poetry in and I've got a Copy of that somewhere on the bookshelf, um, and then who I remember her breathing was. Um, it was almost like she was on a ventilator, but she wasn't. It was very laboured and very kind of mechanical. Um, and I remember uh, the hospital nurse saying that that was kind of she would probably get longer between breaths, and then we would know that um, the end was near, kind of thing. And that happened very early on a on a Saturday morning. I think it was about two o'clock in the morning or something. And um, me and my brother were asleep on the mattress, but I was awake. You know, it was not <laughs> it was not a very good situation to get a good night's sleep in. You kind of sleep pretty um, on and off, and I was lying there listening to hear breathing, and I could hear just a lot longer pause, and then a much longer one. I thought, oh, "Okay, this is it." So I climbed up on the bed with her and. And um, she didn't take any more breaths after that, so we knew that that was, you know, by then she was, she was gone and um, I managed to wake up my brother just before that end, so we was both here with her at the time um, and I I remember going, we had some, my aunt was sleeping on the couch and we had some good friends downstairs and my dad was sleeping and then he'd taken a sleeping pill to help him sleep so he um, was woken up by my brother at about 3 o'clock in the morning by the time this little happened and he came and he was very, very dopey from his sleeping pool but he had told the uh, neighbours that um, he would put the flag that he had up on the on our two-storey balcony he will put it at half-mast even when we so my dad was standing on a kind of a step stool on the corner of a two-storey balcony <laughs> at 3 o'clock in the morning with sleeping bills on a system to put the ladder down. So that was a bit scary for us. Um but it was fine in the end. Um and I remember our good friends that were staying downstairs. They came up, there was these were my mum's best friends for parents' best friends for years and um he had a guitar so he came up and, and played a song to mum and uh, we just kinda of sat with her for a while and yeah, that was that was kind
0: of it. And so when did the undertakers come and fetch her body?
1: Oh, they came um, the next day. She wanted to um, stay in her bed for a little while. She'd already told us that. Uh, so she, um, so we, we left her there. I remember calling the hospice in the middle of the night just to say, what watch I do with a pump on her arm kind of thing. So I remember they came in the morning and, and sorted that kind of out. And then the undertakers came... It was about kind of one or two o'clock in the afternoon, and it was really, really hard. Um, we, we, her bedroom was upstairs, and they had to carry her out down quite a narrow um, flight of concrete steps. And I wasn't able to watch them do that. It was really, it was very hard um, watching that happen and her being taken away in the back of the car. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that she got to you know, be at home and be in her bed for a little while like she wanted to.
0: Now, you've told me that when your mum died, everything happened exactly as it should have. Can you explain yeah. that to me? Um, I guess I'm, what I mean by that is that everything went quite
1: smoothly. Um, it, was, it was very much mum's choice all the way. Um, it towards the end, she did feel it quite, um, quite hard for my brother and my dad to come to terms with what was happening and her decision to stop any treatment. Um, but they, but they had a little time to get used to that. Um, she was, she was quite capable of doing what she wanted her to do right up until the end, um, which was just spending time at home, doing a little, a little bit of sewing and, and painting and things and, and chatting to. Friends and family and spending time with her, me and her sister and my brother and my father, so it was she was able to have a decent quality of life up until the end, and I just feel like it was quite a i guess a making the best of a really bad situation really. it was just it went relatively smoothly because we had lots of support um and yeah it was it was just kind of how it how it was going to happen. i think i don't quite had to explain it more than that
0: now you've told me too that it was quite uncanny that while you were dealing with your mum's death at the same time you were bringing new life into the world so tell me about that
1: oh um so at the time i was i had a two year, two and a half year old daughter at the time, and we were uh, trying for a second baby that wasn't going too well, so um, I'd had uh, a little bit of help with some fertility medication and I actually became pregnant earlier in that year uh, and mis- miscarried the baby just before mum came out of remission. So that was quite, um, that was quite a tough time obviously as well, but the, it was quite uncanny because the due date of that baby was the date that mum passed away. Um, so it was, uh, in a way, it was positive because as I have some complications in my pregnancies, I wouldn't have been able to travel from Christchurch to Nelson as much as I did and wouldn't have been really likely to be well enough. Um, but then we continued on with with the treatment throughout all this. I'm not quite sure I made that decision now, but it, I did. And I found out that three days before mum passed away that we're going to... Um, have our second child later that year, in, in October, and I was able to tell her that she was relatively unresponsive at at the time, but she did give my hand to squeeze. So I completely believe that she heard me and and understood what I meant. Yeah, so it was it was great. I feel it, that's probably one of the hardest things about Mum's death was that she didn't get to meet or um, be involved with most of her grand children's life but one and my daughter was two and a half at the time so she was, you know, she doesn't have many or any memories of her which is, yeah,
0: quite sad So now given that your mum died so young did she leave any jobs unfinished? Um, Yes yeah, she did she had a lot
1: of craft projects to do um, and she one, one thing I do, I've done recently is that she had um she had started off a special a blanket for my brother when he when she was pregnant with him, um, so you know thirty odd years ago and she never got round to finishing it, and we found it, and I said I would finish it for her uh, for any of mike's children and um he now has three children, two of uh a twin, so the younger two twins, so I found the blanket eventually um, and finished it up and, and passed it on to them when the twins were just a few months old I think, so that was um, that was nice. She's also got a very big Victorian dolls house that she was doing up and I told her I'd, I'd finish that for her one day. I haven't quite got there yet as it's in Nelson and all the bits for it are down here, um, but you know, I hope to eventually start on that, but it's a big project. Yeah, so now, there was a few things there.
0: You said that there was positive things about the way in which your mum died. What were they? Um,
1: I guess for that, I mean, uh, we had some really, we had really open communication with our family, which made it very much easier to for mum to kind of say what she wanted to say, uh, what she wanted to happen to her body after she passed away, um, what she you know, down to what music she wanted at her her celebration. We called it celebration rather than a funeral. Uh what she wanted to happen there, who she wanted to have some special um who she wanted to give some of her special possessions to. Um and we just talked just so much about what that would be like. Um like she also told my father that she wanted him to find a new partner at some point which I think he was a bit shocked at but mum was very open in what she was thinking and feeling as as well as everyone else and we as a family we all get on together uh, really well anyway so that helped and we also had a lot of support through the hospice, uh, through the hospice nurse, um, our general practitioner actually as well who came to see mum at home uh, lots of family and friends and also a a cam- counsellor through the hospice as well came and had some family meetings and things with us and it was just a very open and supportive journey uh, which made, uh, like I said before, really the best out of a very bad situation. Um, yeah, so it was positive
0: in that way. And the the urn that she had bought to paint for herself, did she ever get to do that? No, she didn't. Um, she had a lot of projects from
1: the girls that um talked about, and she didn't, she didn't quite get round to it. But um, I think she only she possibly only bought it just a few weeks before she decided to stop treatment. Um, so things, you know, happened quite fast from then. So. She didn't get around to it, but I set up, when she had quite a large bedroom where she was because she wanted to stay at home, she didn't want to be in the hospice, she absolutely wanted to die at home. Uh, So I set up a wee table in the corner of her bedroom and uh, set it up with the urn and some paints and things and I spent kind of those few days uh, while she was in bed um, painting the urn for her, Uh, so she got to kind of... Contribute to what she wanted it to be um, at the beginning, and colours and things like that, and she got to see part of it. I think I, f- I finished it off when she was wasn't you know really able to understand what was going on. So, yep. So it got done in the end, and it turned out really nicely. I'm glad I was able to do that for her.
0: Okay. Thank you so much for telling us your story.
1: It's okay. I'm
0: quite happy to tell it. Okay. Thank you. You've been listening to The Final Curtain Ordinary New Zealanders telling their stories about death Podcasts from this series are available online at oar.org.nz and from the accessmedia.nz app At Death Cafe Dunedin the conversation continues You can join that conversation by listening to other New Zealanders tell their stories about death and, if you want to, by sharing yours. Look for Death Cafe Dunedin on Facebook for updates and meeting times. Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.